Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is Leslie Schrock. You can connect with Leslie at her website, leslieschrock.com. Her Instagram is Leslie Schrock, Twitter at Leslie Jay-Z. And the reason that I invited her on is because of her wonderful book, Bumpin'. And she has an additional book called Fertility Rules. So definitely check both of those out. Bumpin', The Modern Guide to Pregnancy is the book. And she also recently wrote a book called Fertility Rules. Additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. And Leslie has selected the organization called Every Mother Counts, of which some of her bump in profits go towards as well. So this is a very personally meaningful organization to Leslie. I invited Leslie onto the show because my wife and I are expecting a baby boy in August. And so in preparation for having a baby boy, we've been looking through several different books. My wife went through a bunch of different books, and she thought that Bumpin' was the best book in multiple ways. Bumpin' includes a lot of Leslie's personal story and experiences. And Leslie had two miscarriages. Miscarriages are incredibly common and usually aren't publicly or even within a group of friends spoken about too much. And so one of the reasons that Ari and I both loved Bumpin' is that Leslie talks about the challenges of her pregnancy, as well as lots of researched pragmatic advice and what to expect in the first trimester, what to expect in the second trimester. Having a birth team, do you work with a OBGYN, a doula, midwife, a combination of all of them? And Leslie does this incredible dance of getting into the weeds around every single decision that you can make, including what to eat, exercises to do to strengthen your pelvic floor, and some of the emotional aspects as well. She talks about uh, going to therapy and, and talking about the challenges of bringing a human into the world. So I'm a really big fan of what Leslie is up to. And the reason that I particularly had her on, not just from Ari's experience, but the reason that I wanted to have her on is because I think it's really important for men to be part of this conversation as well. If we just continue to sit on the sideline and aren't involved in the conversation, in understanding what is happening to our partner, when they're going through this incredibly rigorous and challenging process, bringing another human into the world is a lot. And so I wanted to have a conversation because I think it's important for men to get involved and to understand what is happening in your partner's body as she brings a human into the world. This is an incredibly wide-ranging conversation. Leslie is a total sweetheart, and I think you're going to really like her right from the onset. And my wife, Ari, actually makes a brief appearance in the conversation and asks an incredible question. So you'll want to stay tuned for that at the end. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Leslie Schrock right now. 
All right, Leslie, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for, like I said, right before hitting record, I, I'm really grateful that you said yes to speaking to this random gentleman who reached out to you on the internet and thanked you for the good work that you did with your book, Bumpin'. And before we get into all things pregnancy, which I really want to talk about, I actually start every one of my interviews with the same question. And of all your public appearances, I've never heard you answer something of this variety. So the question is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? What was it like at my dinner table? You know, we were one of those families. So my dad traveled a lot when I was a kid. But if the whole family was together, we were like one of those very annoying families that had dinner together every night. It was kind of a staple in our house. And we, you know, we had like a meat, a vegetable and a starch. Like we were very kind of, you know, I, I was born in Pennsylvania. My whole family is kind of from that area. And yeah, I mean, it was a pretty boring, I have to admit, it was pretty boring. We moved around a lot as I was a kid, but, you know, in general, I would, we always tried to have dinner together, even when I was like a bratty teenager who didn't really want to do that anymore. But my mom mm -hmm. always really made an effort. And actually that is something that, I have really tried to carry forward with my own family. I'm, it's We make a very concerted effort. You know, I think I told you this was a bit of a travel week for me. I've had a lot of travel this month, which is not typical. I try not to too much because my kids are almost four and, um, you know, going to be two in July. But we try to have dinner together every night. We take a chunk of time before bedtime every night to try to be present. And we try to, you know, really block that that time with, with the kids because it's important just to have you know, if you can't have quantity time, quality time is, you know, the best thing anyway. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, like with pregnancy, I think that boring stability can actually be a, a really great thing. So you yes. know, a lot of times I ask that question and people long, long for that type of steady. We had dinner every night, meat, starch, vegetable. And yeah. so I, I love that. That's something I aspire to with my family as well. So yeah. What would you say? Like, I know that you didn't think that you were going to be writing a book on pregnancy and and that would be kind of some sort of launch point to your career. What were you driven by when you were younger? Like, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, oddly enough, I kind of always knew I would write something because I am a very, very voracious reader. I grew up, you know, I my mom was smart. I now look back and I think, wow, that was a lot of work because I'm now going through the same thing as, as a mom. But, you know, we didn't watch a lot of TV in our house. My mom really tried to shift us towards books. And in my case, it worked. I was a voracious reader growing up. I went to the library a lot, especially during the summer, you know, the book reading contests and things where you like fill the little temperature gauge with like how many books you've read that summer. Yeah. But we would go to the the library weekly and, you know, always my mom was always happy to take me to the bookstore, but I was a very avid library utilizer and I still am actually. So yeah, I've still, I use the Libby app mostly these days, but because I'm on the, I'm on the go, I live in New York. So I'm, I'm on the subway and I'm just out and about an awful lot and I'm, I'm traveling, but you know, I think that she did a really smart thing and I'm trying to do the same thing with my kids is just, it's like the one thing that research bears out about early childhood is that probably reading to your kids out loud every mm. day as often as you can is maybe the best gift you can give them from an educational perspective, especially before they're five. Wow. Beautiful. So before we get into bumping and male fertility and, and all of the things, I, I wanted to talk to you about, or maybe just a little bit of background. I have 
I think I share your type A type of personality. And one of the ways that manifests for me is that when I had health issues and went to doctors, I didn't feel like I was A, being really seen or heard, and B, was getting really viable solutions. And nutrition is something that's really important to me that I have become an advocate for myself in a way that I didn't think I was getting answers from the professionals that I looked up to. And I know that in your, maybe it was teen years that it started to surface, that you had ulcerative colitis and digestive issues. And I think one of my favorite parts of your book is that you, you identify that everyone is unique and everyone has their own kind of way that you can be healed and whole. And I am just wondering if you could talk about what it was like to be a teenager who had to like figure out how do you keep these symptoms at bay? So when I was a kid, I had some gut issues, right? Like even when I was, I think I was like eight or nine years old and we, you know, I was tested for food allergies for a while. They thought I was celiac. We were, you know, getting really creative at home with like what cereals are gluten-free because back then it was not really much of a Mm. thing. It was pretty hard to find good options. And I just kind of grew up with a sensitive stomach. It was always like that, even before I got my first period. And then after that, those first few years, I had really painful periods, really painful periods, rather, <laughs> menstrual cycle period, whatever. But I, I always had just kind of a, a menstrual cycle. You know, it was very predictable. Right around the time of my period, I would get sick and it got progressively worse and worse and worse through my teenage years. Then I got on birth control when I was 16 because they said, oh, you know, this will probably help. Uh, And that did actually really help. It got things kind of under control for me. It was no longer, you know, I no longer had the same kind of cramping. I no longer had the same kind of digestive distress as it related to that, but my stomach continued to be really sensitive. And so I went through probably five years of, you know, every year at the gynecologist, I'd say, you know, I just don't think this is normal. It feels a little weird. Like it's very urgent. I don't know. Like, can you do anything? Oh, it's just IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, which is very Mm -hmm. common, you know, with, with periods. So, you know, I went through five years of that. And then finally I got so sick. It got worse and worse. And I got so sick one night, I thought I was going to die on the floor of my bathroom by myself. And luckily for me, I had an appointment with a GI the next morning and I went in and I was like a ghost. I mean, it was, there was nothing left in there. It was coming out both ends. It was awful. Uh, One of the worst nights of my entire life. And I went in and they said, oh, okay, well, this is uh, clearly something's going on. And the, the GI talked to me and he said, well, this could be something serious, actually, the way you're describing it. So why don't you come in on Monday for a colonoscopy? So, you know, I got rushed through the process. Finally, finally, I had somebody who listened to me, but it really required advocating for myself and arguing with schedulers and all kinds of other people. And I said, I know that this is not normal. I know that this is not the way that this is supposed to be. And, you know, I got in there and during the colonoscopy, they found out I have ulcerative colitis. And so that day, my whole relationship with food, with my gut really changed in a meaningful way. Um, But luckily for me, I think you can probably tell through my writing, I am nothing if not willing to do the research and willing to put the time in to sort out my problems. And so I actually tracked everything I ate for a year, like in a spreadsheet. It was crazy. It was a lot of work. But at the end of that year, I had to go in for a follow-up colonoscopy and there was no sign of the colitis. 
I was on medication at that point too. It was helping manage everything. And, you know, after a little while, after another year, I said, you know, I wonder if I can just control this through my diet. And my doctor said, I don't know if that's a good idea, but it's your body and you can make that decision for yourself. And I haven't really been on medication since I was, I went on it for during my first pregnancy, just because I was very nervous, especially, I think we'll probably get into how difficult my fertility journey was. I just felt like it was not worth taking any more risks. So I just happily got on it. Luckily it's what they prescribe for pregnant women anyway. So it's very pregnancy safe. It was fine. I was on it. And then, you know, my second pregnancy, I felt like I had everything under control and I had buy off from my OB and, and my GI. And they said, you know, it's seems like everything's okay. In fact, maybe that was just a very elevated state, but just, I think my story is so illustrative of the reality, which is that number one, as a patient, you have to go in and be very upfront and demand answers and demand, mm -hmm. you know, that, that you be taken seriously, sadly. And then two, you know, that gut issues are very misunderstood. They're not, we have not put in the research in time to really even understand irritable bowel disorder, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, which is, you know, IBS, which is experienced by probably like half of all women, to be honest, it's a wow. lot. So yeah, it's very common, but because it's so common, just like painful cramps during a woman's period, it's just brushed off as normal and it's anything but. Hmm. So what were, I'm, I'm very curious, obviously, what were some of the foods that you eliminated and foods that you found were helpful for you? And I also would love to get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of the spreadsheet. Like, was it calories? Were you tracking micronutrients? Was it just a list of all your food? So I used a bunch of apps for a while. And then in the end, I realized what I really needed to do was, you know, just make note of all the ingredients that I knew went into a dish. If I was cooking, like what kind of cooking, cooking oil was I using? What kind of, you know, what kind of vegetable? What, what? So I would notate kind of every single thing that I knew was in a dish. And then I would always put a marking in the spreadsheet on any, you know, any times that I had an issue. So, you know, if I knew that I would just eaten and then two hours later I've got sick, I knew that it was something that I ate. So I would inevitably find out that, okay, fried foods are a hard no. Red meat is something I get to have very, very occasionally. And I don't really care for it that, you know, I have like environmental issues with it anyway. So I try not to eat too much of it regardless, but occasionally like you want a really nice steak. So I don't, you know, I don't uh, deprive myself of that. But one of the weird ones actually is... A lot of people do really well with rice. I can't eat a lot of certain kinds of rice. Basmati rice does not agree with me. Sushi rice is okay, weirdly, but there are different kinds of rice that just don't really, I get really bloated if I eat them. Too much wheat will do that too. And then arugula. I don't know. <laughs> I was in, well, I used to spend a lot of time in London. And so I would go and have a rocket salad. And then like very shortly afterwards would be like, what is happening to my body? But I didn't really notice it until... I kept this crazy spreadsheet. And then obviously, you know, I think one one other thing to touch on here is that I had this extremely detailed history of food and I went into my GI and I said, look at what I made and look at, you know, what I learned. And he was, his reaction was, wow, that's, yeah, good for you. And I said, don't you want it? And he said, what am I going to do with that? I, I don't know what to do with that. And, you know, at this point, this was back in like, I think it was 2009, he was right. 
what was he going to do with that? The doctors don't know what to do with all the self-track data. So really like I look at this and I look at kind of the self-tracking movement as it, as it stands today. And with wearables is something you really have to own by yourself because the, the world of Western medicine is not really equipped to manage all of that data. Hmm. So there's, there's something in here, maybe I'll put a pin in it, but I think it's going to tie into when we talk about pregnancy that when you're able to take control of something like that in your life that felt so out of control for a long time, you want to, I would imagine you wanted to overlay that on your pregnancy, right? So it's like, I had these really terrible pains with my ulcerative colitis. I know I've researched so many things, I should be able to have some control in my pregnancy. And I, I want to get into just all the ways that you've had to let go, surrender, whatever you want to call it, because I already knew this, but in reading your book, it's almost like a meditation in letting go because there's so many things that you can't possibly plan for in a pregnancy with regard to fertility, like conception, getting pregnant in the first place, and then the way that you give birth among many other things. So I want to put a pin in that because it's something I, I really want to talk to you about in, in terms of how you would maybe advise other people to look at planning or yeah, preparing and not really having this like super structured plan. But I wanted to start with you. You know, my wife had a miscarriage the first time that she got pregnant. And I know that you had two miscarriages. And it's something that's not, in my experience, even though you wrote the book four or so years ago, I still think we have a long way to go in publicly talking about miscarriages and how common they are. So I would love to start with your story of, you know, your journey of getting pregnant uh, when you had TJ. Yeah. So uh, my journey is pretty well known at this point. In fact, I was at a conference this week and I keep forgetting that everybody who's read that book knows my birth story and knows this journey. But, um, you know, I was 34, I think, when we decided to start trying. And, you know, I thought, oh, I'm, I know a lot about health. I know a lot about, you know, my body. I'm this very empowered user of, you know, healthcare. And, you know, I got pregnant the first cycle off of birth control. And I thought to myself, haha, like, this is exactly how I thought this would go. And then I miscarried like two weeks later. And it was a complete shock. Um, I miscarried actually up in British Columbia. I had you know, I thought maybe it would take a little while and had booked this ski trip. So I was in this remote part of, of British Columbia uh, with my husband and had no idea what to do, where to go, where to turn, any of it. And, you know, I had to use Maven to figure mm -hmm. out how to navigate, you know, do I need to go to the hospital? Do I not go to the hospital? I know I'm pregnant and now I'm bleeding and I, I don't know what to do. And luckily for me, that that miscarriage resolved itself. And I would say that my primary feeling, you know, afterward was just shock. Like shocked mm -hmm. that it had happened so quickly, shocked that it had gone so quickly. You know, I felt like I was, you know, very fertile and all of that. But I just kind of said like, wow, that that was not what I was expecting to happen. So then two weeks later, I didn't know that this was a thing again, like didn't know I got pregnant again two weeks later. So you can ovulate right after a miscarriage. In fact, right after a miscarriage, you are very fertile. So I got pregnant again, and this one stuck around for longer, but we 
ended up finding out around, you know, 11, 12 weeks that it was chromosomally abnormal. And also the ultrasound showed that, you know, the fetus was not developing. The measurements were all off. There were all kinds of other physical things that we could see. But I got the CVS test anyway. I went through all of the testing. But, you know, when we were done and everything was confirmed, you know, the genetic counselor and my OB said, well, you you need to, you know, you need to take care of this. And there's no hope here. There's no life here. There's no chance of anything. And I had to have an abortion, which was at the time it made my head explode. Like who thinks that they're going to have to get an abortion for a very, very wanted baby, but waiting for it to resolve on its own is not a good idea because you can get sepsis. It's like why people used to die during pregnancy back before Mm -hmm. we had, you know, prenatal care and modern medicine. So I got it. And that experience also was very crazy because, you know, I went and I was asked questions during the process, like, do you want to do this? Is somebody forcing you to do this? And I thought, oh my God, of course I don't want this, but no one's forcing me to do this. But like, yeah, are you asking me if I want to have, you know, a pregnancy that's not viable? No, like, but I, I, anyway, so it was a complete trip and, and it was really that experience of a very wanted pregnancy, a very, very, you know, uh, shocking experience that motivated me to write Bumpin' to be honest, because I felt like it was not something that anyone had ever talked to me about. I felt like it was, you know, this experience that I was sure lots of people had gone through before me and many would go through afterwards, but no one really wanted to talk about it. And of course, obviously, since it's happened, I have helped so many friends who have encountered this this situation navigate it. You know, but that was really... I mean, we were talking about why I started to write. I always thought I'd write fiction. And Mm -hmm. I think in this particular case, though, because I had, you know, I had all of these resources because of my work. I've worked in health and tech for a long time. I have access to all these different providers, but I couldn't help thinking if it's this hard for me, what must it be like for everyone else? And Mm -hmm. so that's really what motivated me to write Bump. And I was, I had a very kind of non-traditional you know, publication journey with with that book. But, you know, I, I feel really proud of it because I think that I shared things that no one else was really willing to talk about. And then I had a really great coterie of different provider types who contributed to it as well. And I interviewed tons and tons of people. I'm actually going to work on a second edition of Bumpin' mm. uh, starting in a few weeks. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I feel like the writing of that book was a gift though. It really opened me up to something that I didn't even know I loved to do, which is, which is right. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being willing to share about your personal story here, because I think that it's really important. And is it is it 25% still? I, I believe that's the number I've heard, it's, that end of miscarriage. Yeah. I mean, it was, to be completely frank, we will probably never know unless some point we put microchips in our bodies, because a lot of miscarriages happen so early right. on in a pregnancy that they're not even detectable. But yes, they miscarriages happen in around one in four pregnancies. And something that's it's been coming up a lot lately because I keep hearing this stat is that about half of IVF cycles are due to secondary infertility, which is mm. primary infertility is when you have difficulties conceiving before you have a child. So with TJ, for example, my two miscarriages would be considered primary infertility with 
my second son, I actually had another miscarriage between my two kids. That's secondary infertility where you have, you know, you have a child, you conceived without assisted reproduction treatments or medications, and yet you still have a loss. And so I think that that was, that was a shock for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was not in bumping because obviously my second son was not around at that point, but yeah, it's it's a quite a shock to people, I think, to discover that just because you have one child doesn't mean you're going to be able to, you know, successfully do it super simply the second time because things can change with your uterus. You know, the placenta can cause issues if something happened during your first pregnancy or second pregnancy, even repeated C-sections and then changes to your body after pregnancy. I think a lot of people, something that I hear a lot is, you know, women who are pregnant once and then, you know, are on the road to recovery, they said, well, I'm just going to have another baby later anyway. So I'm not going to bother really doing pelvic floor therapy or, you know, you know, maintaining my activity or doing other things because I'm just going to be pregnant anyway. But what they don't know is that skipping pelvic floor therapy and then having a second pregnancy really, really puts you at a disadvantage. So that was, you know, another thing that that was very clear to me, even as a, as a pregnant person. But I think with, with secondary infertility, oftentimes it's because we have this baby around, as you know, as a parent, you kind of neglect yourself during that experience and, you know, it can have, it can have side effects. Hmm. Well, uh, I'll out myself here. I'm actually not quite a parent just yet. At the time of recording, my wife is 23 weeks and two days pregnant. So by the time of this episode release, I'll be close to being a parent, but I, I don't know exactly what it is to be a, a parent experientially. So, But one, one of the reasons that this conversation is so timely for me is that we're right in the middle of the second trimester. And a lot of these considerations that we're going to talk about yeah. today... I'm really in the thick of it. I'm not talking from, uh, you know, finished my kids out on this planet and and already doing it. So one of one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about because I had heard of doulas, I had heard of midwives, but they were always looked at as esoteric or and home birthing is I think another thing that it's like in some ways looked at as new agey and not practical in, in a Western sense and. One of the important decisions that of, of the many that I think we can we make as as parents in the very beginning is do we want to work with a doula? Do we want to work with a midwife? Do we want to work with an OB? Some combination. And so yep. I would love to hear what that looked like for you. I know that working with a doula was an incredible experience for you. So would love to hear you. It was talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so a doula is if you want to think about an OB as the waist down. So they're there to help you with birth. They're there to find issues. They're there to treat issues, but they're not really there for your mental health. They're not really there for, you know, the whole person. And they're very busy. Like there aren't enough of them. There's a lot of burnout in that profession. I have a lot of empathy for obstetricians today because they have a tough job really tough job, but it has downstream effects. This shortage of providers has real, you know, effects on patient care, which is that, you know, a lot of patients don't feel heard. They don't feel like the 15 minutes an appointment is enough. And this is the, this is the standard of care for most people in this country at this point, because midwifery has suffered from 
centuries and centuries of misinformation. They've been cast as witches. They've been, mm -hmm. you know, like the medical profession for a while, especially when, when obstetricians were on the rise, they really pushed them aside. It was seen as, you know, kind of like this natural thing. But the reality is today's midwives actually are mostly nurse practitioners exclusively. Like they are credentialed. They have to go through tests and the outcomes from births led by midwives are better than those just led by the, by OBs because midwives, you know, if you have a midwife lead your prenatal care, typically you'll get more time in appointments. They're focused more on the whole person. They'll talk to you about things like nutrition. They, it won't be just this kind of gathering of, of data and the way that OB appointments are. And I've talked to a million OBs and I'm friends with a lot of OBs and they will all tell you exactly the same thing. They're like, yeah, our job is like to gather this data and to make sure everything's tracking correctly, but we just don't have enough time to go through. Here's a good nutritional plan. Actually, you're not eating for two. Like it's, it should only be a little bit more. And that's only even a little bit more in the second and third trimester on the same level. They're not really equipped to work with people who have eating disorders because there are big, you know, people who have body dysmorphia have a very hard time during pregnancy. And, you know, they're not always equipped to know that, for example, telling someone their weight every appointment is very triggering for those with eating disorders. So there are a lot of nuances, I think, to the system that we have today, but this is where midwifery, I really hope to become much more of a widespread phenomena. And I believe doulas, when they are well-trained and understand their place in the system, I think it's an incredible thing. And what I mean by knowing their place in the system. So if you talk to a lot of OBs, some love doulas and some do not. And it kind of depends on the doula because the doula's job is to listen to you and support you. They're like your advocate during the birthing process, but their job is not to give you medical advice and their job is not to overrule your doctor. Like if your doctor says, hey, your baby is breech and we need to go in and like do a C-section now because it's not safe to, to you know, deliver, your doula's job is not to make you do a vaginal breech birth, right? Like, and by the way, just fun fact with that, because this comes up a lot, a lot of people are like, well, why can't you deliver a vaginal, you know, breech birth? It's like, well, actually most OBs are not trained to do it. It's a risky procedure and there are all kinds of, you know, midwife led procedures. Ina Mae Gaskin's really famous for, for one particular, you know, way of doing that. But, you know, it's a training thing more than anything else. It also is genuinely risky because the cord can get stuck. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong, but I think doulas work with you before a birth. They help you understand what's going to happen during childbirth. They help you understand what your options are during childbirth. A lot of people just think you go to the hospital, you get your epidural, and then you push out a baby a few weeks later or a few you know hours later. Most of the time, it's not the case. A lot of people get sent home because they're not long and you know they're not far enough along in the labor process. But like, how would you know? Like, no one's really telling you exactly how they say, oh, you know, you do it by breath. Some people, it's because they're nervous, they're stressed out. The breath thing doesn't always really work, you know. So anyway, it's it's a really interesting, a really interesting thing. But I'm a huge fan of doulas, as you can probably tell. And I did yeah. have a doula for the birth of my first son. Second time, it was a C-section again. So I, I was not a good candidate for a VBAC. So I was, you know, not able to pursue that. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm a, a life coach and I feel like doulas in a lot of ways are, are coaches, right? They're mm -hmm. just helping you get in touch with what, what you want and 
when pregnant yeah, I, to you, they're coaches for the partner too. I think yeah, one of the yeah. difficult things, like, you know, you're a pregnant woman, you're late, you're in labor and like your partner, if it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, I think there's a lot of like, what do I do? How do I help? What do mm-hmm. I do? And it's kind of the doula's job also to teach you yeah. how to be useful, how to help, what to do, what to expect, you know, what, what to look out for if there, you know, if there is anything, if you're, you know, at risk of anything. So yeah, it's a really great thing, but they can help you save a lot of time before you go to the mm. hospital because a lot of people go way too early before they're dilated enough. They won't admit you until you're, you know, typically until you're three or four centimeters dilated. And sometimes the contractions are, you know, close and sometimes they're not. And a lot of people can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought in the role of a partner because, I mean, that's my role. That's the reason ostensibly that you said yes to be on the show is that you want to get men, men more involved in this conversation. And I I want to, this is pretty open-ended, but like, what are some ways that you want to, like, if I just gave you an open-ended, here's a message that you want to send to men and to get men more involved in this conversation. What do you like, what would you want to tell us? I would say that we want you to be there. Like we want you to just ask us how to help. What would you like right now? So I think the single most powerful thing a partner can do for a pregnant person is ask, what would you like me to do? And then don't wait to even be asked. If you know that she, you know, loves to go on walks, offer to go on a walk. If you know that she loves, you know, a certain type of meal, make sure that you have that kind of meal. If you're doing a meal train after birth to support you, make sure that you have food lined up. But I think that there are these very tangible things that that men can do. And I don't want to drop into stereotypical tasks, but some of them will be. But I, I think that, you know, you can own things like helping to set up the nursery, putting together furniture, you know, painting a room. Like these are very tangible tasks that frankly, pregnant women really shouldn't be painting. It's not really great mm-hmm. to inhale those fumes. So do the things that she can't get on a ladder like fix up a room, do the, do the useful things. Again, I don't want to be stereotypical, but it's a safety thing, frankly. And then, you know, ask what she wants, make sure she feels beautiful, you know, tell her she looks great. I think that that's such a difficult thing for, for people that, especially women in their, in their, you know, mid to late thirties who have looked a certain way pretty much their whole lives and things change very quickly. I think that's another really important thing postpartum is to be understanding of, you know, the hormonal swings. Day four is rough for everybody because there's this big hormone drop that happens. Like it's very predictable, but no one really tells anyone to expect it. And then also, you know, with postpartum depression, I think it's really important, especially in those first six to 12 weeks to check in frequently. How are you doing? Like, what can I do to be helpful? How are you feeling today? You know, and make sure that they, that she feels really safe telling you too, because right now pediatricians are kind of the first line of defense for postpartum depression. Women don't have a postpartum appointment typically until six weeks after birth. The ACOG's trying to get it moved closer to two weeks, which would be a much more reasonable timeline in my opinion. But, you know, in your first well baby visit, when you get home from the hospital, the pediatrician will ask, how are you doing? Do you have enough support? So, you know, you can't do everything if you know that she has friends that are, you know, friends and family that she really loves, coordinate visits, make sure they don't Mm. stay too long, 
make sure and you know and if you do lying in so there's a chinese custom of you know lying in after birth where you don't shower and you don't you know you eat warm foods and you do you know there's there's a whole kind of program there but i i think if that's not something that you're interested in being sure you get outside and you take a shower every day in those first weeks after you give birth when you have mm. this like like tiny floppy baby around, which you love and, you know, smells really good, but you're kind of like trying to figure it out. I think it's really helpful to go for walks mm -hmm. and to shower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, what, one of the things that I'm hearing that underlies all of this is just continue to ask, how can I help yes. you? What do, what do you want? And then there's yes. also maybe the next level is start to notice the patterns, anticipate what she might want and yep. start to take care of that. So, yep. And when the baby's born, you can be, you know, she, she may or may not be breastfeeding. If she's breastfeeding, it's your job to like do diapers, mm -hmm. do some burping, participate as you can, get her food, get her water, you know, just take care of her the same way that you're taking care of the baby. Pregnant women are, you know, attention is lavished upon pregnant women. And the sooner like the baby comes out and it's like, no one cares. Mm. It's, it's a fascinating thing. You go into stores as a pregnant woman and you know, everyone's very excited. And sometimes people want to touch your belly. It's very strange. And then the minute you're in there with a stroller, it's like, Oh God, it's a baby, you know? And it's, mm -hmm. it's a very, it's a strange transition. Yeah. There's something else I, I believe and correct me if I'm wrong in, in any of my citations of the book. <laughs> because there's, there's so many different facts and, and the, the rigor and the research is incredible. But one of the things that helped me build a lot of empathy, because sometimes, you know, I'm a human, I'm doing my best, I'm, I'm trying to anticipate all the things that my wife wants while she's pregnant and get her, get her good food and just trying to be really sweet and listen to her. But there's sometimes where I'm just like, I'm tired too, but I, and I know she's pregnant. But anyway, one of the things that you wrote in your book is that or I don't, I don't know exactly what the stat was, but the energy expenditure is almost like you're running a marathon every day. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. I mean, your body makes a lot of extra blood to support the pregnancy. You're growing an actual human in your body. So yes, it is the equivalent to running a marathon. That is what you go through from an en energy expenditure perspective, which is why supporting a pregnancy with, you know, a diet packed full of nutrients, it's one reason that having a prenatal vitamin every day is so critical, especially, you know, during the first trimester when it helps prevent neural tube defects and other birth defects. Um, but it also helps fill deficiencies throughout your pregnancy. You know, you can think of the baby, though, as kind of a parasite. It's going to take everything it needs and leave you with nothing. So if you're not eating good food, and I think that we should talk about that too, right? What is good food? Yeah. Because, you know, if you're experiencing morning sickness odds are you're not going to want greens. You're not going to want vegetables. You're not really going to want healthy quote unquote stuff. You're going to like a bunch of carbs. I mean, I mm -hmm. ate like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and oatmeal during that period of time because I couldn't even smell meat. It grossed me out. I didn't even, I didn't throw up, but I had really bad nausea with, you know, my, actually my first two pregnancies with TJ, it wasn't so bad. He gave me acid reflux, which was, mm -hmm. I would say an improvement over what I had been through previously, but you know, but yeah, it's 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 tough, but you you definitely need to hydrate, you need to take care of yourself, you need to listen to your body, rest when you need rest. I think and also just be mindful though that when it comes to eating extra food, obviously you have to listen to your body first and foremost. If your body's telling you, you know, I'm really hungry or I I really need, you know, carbs right now. Odds are there's probably a reason for it, but 
In the first trimester, you need zero extra calories. In the second trimester, you only need 200 extra calories. And then the third trimester, you need 400. And that's it. That's like a little sandwich. That's not really that much. Mm -hmm. I think the same myth gets perpetuated when you're breastfeeding. Yes, you do need some extra calories. A lot of people think that they're going to breastfeed and just like lose all the weight instantly. And that's simply not how it works. Also, if you're eating an extra, you know, thousand calories a day because you think you have to during breastfeeding, again, I would urge you to eat, you know, eat nuts, eat things that are packed with nutrients, eat avocado, like good fats, good healthy fats that are also filling are so critical as opposed to just eating like, I don't know, a handful of granola, which is just really sugar. So mm. it's, it's really being mindful, but I, I just want to say, like, I think that this is one of the reasons it's so powerful to pay attention to your body during pregnancy and really listen to what your body wants. I, I thought I knew my body. I've, I've been an athlete my whole life. I know my body so much better after all the, all the pregnancies and, and all of the work that I've done than I ever have before. And it's a really wonderful thing. It's like the, maybe one of the best gifts other than my kids that I personally got from the experience. Hmm. Did you with Dylan work out the full time that you were pregnant with him like you did with TJ as well? Oh gosh. So no, because I had placenta previa with Dylan. So that's a condition in which the placenta grows over the cervix. And I had a complete previa. So I had some bleeding with him. That pre- that was a tough pregnancy mentally for me. Mm-hmm. I, I was really anxious. We found out around 20 weeks at the anatomy scan that, you know, I had the, the previa and that was the cause of, you know, the spotting and stuff. And so I was on pelvic rest for 12 weeks, which means no heavy exercise, no heavy lifting, which is very difficult when you have a two-year-old around. Mm-hmm. I was not supposed to lift him up at all, which was really, really hard. And no sex, no, yeah, no, no heavy lifting, no sex. And that was, those were the two things that basically I, I had to do for 12 weeks of that pregnancy. But after I was cleared, I was able to go back to, you know, to, to working out, but I, I couldn't do I just kind of gave myself a, a break on that. And I, I did a lot of walking, you know, I did some weight training, some resistance training, but really I kind of kept it a little less high impact just because physically it wasn't where I was. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with TJ, I was doing CrossFit until I was like 41 weeks. I mean, it was yeah. great. It was Which awesome. I wanted to talk to you about because I think that's a, another misconception about pregnancy is maybe you need to just like take it easy all the time. And yes, of course, your your body's going through so much. So it's okay if you want to rest a little bit more. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about how you were able to do CrossFit until basically until you gave birth. Yeah. So I, because I was writing my book, I worked with a trainer during that period of time. So not the whole time, but a a large chunk of that time. So I was pretty supervised, but even like I was able to go to group classes by myself and it was fine because I spent the time to work on my form. So I want to be very clear about this, that, you know, even if you are like me, someone who's been an athlete your whole life, odds are there's probably something about your form and what you're doing that is perhaps not the best. And your body changes so much during pregnancy, relaxants flowing through your body. There are just changes you can't even anticipate. And, you know, the way your body moves and functions and creaks and all of the things are, are very different. And so, you know, for me, it was important because I needed to write about it. I needed to write about it. I had a, this, this woman was my contributor actually in, in those sections. And so she and I worked closely together because I wanted to understand really how to tell people how to do this. But we spent significant amounts of time, like 
figuring out how to help me feel that my back was flat instead of arched, like doing a bird dog, you know, these very basic things, how to do a squat properly, you know, using like kind of the three point, like connection point on the top of your head and your, you know, the base of your neck. And then also like the, your, your low back where your spine connects to your pelvis, like, you know, thinking about that as a straight line versus what I'd been doing before. So I think if you, you know, if you are kind of an intense athlete, like, you know, like I, I am and was, and you really love this. I think it's worth even just taking one session with someone to just kind of say, Hey, let's do a check-in. Let me show you what I'm doing. Can you help me tweak my form? And remember that it's, and frankly, now that I'm 40, like it's like this for me all the time now where it's really quality over quantity anyway. Mm -hmm. Like I go to, you know, CrossFit style high impact classes now and like, you know, somebody, one of the coaches might be yelling at me, like, go faster. And I'm like, I can't go, like, I can go faster, but I can't maintain my form doing that. And I'm not, that's not why I'm here. Like, leave me alone. And and it's always funny to talk to people afterwards too, because I, I always do. I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm here to be competitive, like, of course, but I'm not here to hurt myself. Like, I, I'm good. And they're like, yeah, it's kind of amazing, actually, because no one has that attitude in here. And it would probably be much better if more people paid attention to the fact that they're going to throw out their back by trying to do all these crazy reps super, super fast. So I'm like, I am a hundred percent in the moderation camp now, but I think it's very helpful to, to, you know, take a moment and work on your form. That applies to people like me too. It, you don't have to be pregnant for that to be the case. I, I wish that when I was 18 years old, that I paid a lot more attention to my form. So I think that's that's useful for anyone who's listening to this. But there's there's so many things I want to talk to you about, Leslie, but I know that you've got a book on fertility coming out in the yeah. next couple of months. And by the time this episode is released, the book will probably be out already. So I want to maybe segue to fertility. But we could bounce around because there's so many other things I want to talk about. But yeah, one of the things about fertility that was brought to my attention is that oftentimes, well, almost all the time in my experience, the attention, the microscope is put on the woman. So if you're having trouble conceiving, it's very likely that, and we're assuming a heterosexual, a heteronormative relationship here, but it's very likely that you're looking at the woman as, as the reason for the infertility. So one of the things that was enlightening for me to read is that a often case or oftentimes it's, it's the man. So I'm, I'm wondering if that is among other things, but what gave you the impetus to write this book? And if you could talk a little bit about fertility rules and, and the book itself. I wrote that book as a prequel to Bumpin' because I recognized that the questions that I got about Bumpin', there was a huge number of how does ovulation work? Wait, that's not how you get pregnant. Like there's a, there's a chapter in that book that's, you know, about how to get pregnant. Bumpin' actually does have a preconception section, but it wasn't enough. I, I just kept mm. getting the same five questions. Like, how do I prepare my body? What do I do? Like, how does it actually work? What is ov like, what is ovulation? I'm like, oh my God, like we do such a bad job of educating people in, in this kind. I mean, really everywhere, but this country has a, because everything just gets conflated with sex. And really like what mm. we should be teaching is this is how fertile windows work. Like, this is the biology. Like, let's not even talk about sex right now. Let's just talk about how your body works and the constraints under which, you know, you can or cannot get pregnant. So you can't get pregnant on your period. It's not a thing. Like, it's not, mm. 
you'd be shocked at how often this stuff comes up and who's asking it. It's people who, frankly, I always thought would know, but nobody does. In fact, half of all medical students don't even understand ovulation, which is really saying something because they've received medical training. So what I wanted to do was give people a guide that would help them prepare. If you know you want to get pregnant, if you know that building a family is on the horizon, what I like to tell people is whatever moment that is, whether it's six months or a year away, now's a great time to start. If it's three months away, that's actually exactly the right time to start, especially if you're a guy. But it takes two. And I think that men have been excluded from this narrative for a long time. I think that men, in the same way that their partners have to take a you know prenatal vitamin, men should probably take a multivitamin during that period too. There are benefits to you know just filling those deficiencies. Obviously, diet is the most important thing when it comes to you know getting the vitamins and minerals you need. But you know, having a prenatal vitamin that helps fill the gaps is a good thing for for both. But I, I like to say that three months is a great time to start because that is when, you know, the immature eggs are recruited to be matured in a woman's body. And for men, it takes about three months to make a new batch of sperm. And so really, if you take that time to limit your exposure to hot things like saunas. You want to stop cycling. I know Peloton lovers like get a noseless <laughs> seat at a minimum, but preferably just kind of dial it back for a few months while you're trying to conceive. Choose another form of exercise, um, but really anything that's going to heat the testicles. Steroid use is a huge problem. THC use is a huge problem. You should not be doing any of those things while you're trying to conceive, but ideally you you stop doing it for three to six months before you try. Mm -hmm. What I, and I know I, I have an idea of what your answer might be here because everyone's different and there isn't just one prenatal vitamin or one multivitamin that you would recommend, but what are, what are things that you should be looking for in a prenatal or multivitamin? Whether you're, I guess we could do for a man and for a woman. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, there are male prenatal vitamins. So CoQ10 is the only supplement that is shown to have really have real fertility benefits for both. I think taking CoQ10 is not a bad idea. There's no, there's no side effect. There's no downside to it. You might as well just take CoQ10. And there are lots of supplement brands out there that, that do it. I, I will note that you really want to pay attention to, you know, sourcing practices and quality of supplements if you can. It's a very unregulated industry. And I think it's quite important to make sure you're buying from a company who you trust. Usually they'll have something about their sourcing practices and the quality of the underlying ingredients on the website. It isn't, in my opinion, very worth investing in a good one. And there are companies out there doing doing good stuff. But yeah, for for men and women, it's it's vitamin D. For men, it's zinc, selenium, folic acid. All of those are really helpful. For women, just the real thing is is getting folic acid, folate. Uh, that's the folic acid is the synthetic form of folate, which naturally occurs in green vegetables and other places. So, but but all of these products really should be formulated with with these key ingredients. Like I I, I spoke to a urologist. I remember. And I said, well, Mike, like, tell me, tell me all the ingredients that should be in, you know, a male prenatal vitamin. He said, Leslie, if men would just take a daily multivitamin, like even the one you just buy at the grocery store, that would be an improvement over what we're doing now. And I said, man, that's, that's a pretty low bar, buddy. And he was like, <laughs> what can I say? Men, men don't want to take anything. Men don't want to, until they're older, you know, until they're in like their sixties and they have to, they don't want to take anything. So if I could just get him to even take a prenatal, that would be great, or a, a multivitamin. But there are male prenatal vitamins now. 
And, you know, for women, it's really the folic acid. I would also say choline is something that has not historically always been included in prenatal vitamins, but it's really important for brain development. And a good, a good one will have, you know, the correct amount, but you can also get choline through food, through eggs, especially. I ate a lot of eggs when I was pregnant with TJ and yeah, both of my kids, actually, I tried really hard to do that and get it, get it as in my food. Mm -hmm. And well, that's where I was going. So I knew that eggs are a good source of choline. What are, what are some other foods that you would recommend for fertility purposes? Yeah. You know, this is a really, this was a question that I had a lot of trouble answering for a little while, because obviously we all know what all of the fertility influencers say, eat a lot of salmon, eat berries, you know, eat nuts, eat these very specific things. And it's just not a fit for everybody's dietary preferences. Uh, And it's not a fit for everybody's cultural dietary preferences either. You know, there are some cultures that don't eat some of these things. So, and some people don't like them. So I think it's being really restrictive about it. I like to think of it more generally, right? So when you're thinking about food, you really need to exclude as much processed food as you can. If people just did that, try to eat things where you know what is in your food. You recognize the ingredients to be, you know, meat, fish, vegetables, potatoes, whatever it is eating whole foods, eating organic as you can, because endocrine disruption is real. It is, unfortunately, pesticides are not good for anybody and they're in a lot of our foods. So if you can eat organic, eat organic and then avoid trans fats and added sugars. So if you are eating processed foods, ensure that what you're eating doesn't contain trans fats really at all. If you can help it a little bit is okay, but preferably none. And added sugars, if you're, especially if you're a man and you're drinking a lot of soda, just stop it. Artificial sugars aren't good either. There's a lot of research that shows that, you know, drinking a ton of diet soda is in some ways equally as bad, just in different ways as drinking full, full sugar soda. So I would say like sugary beverages of any kind, sports drinks, you know, soda, just cut it out. Like those are just terrible. Like they're terrible for you anyway, even when you're not trying to conceive, but they're especially bad when you're trying to conceive. Mm-hmm. Are there other lifestyle considerations that you delve into in, in the book outside of nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, one other thing, just like the salmon and berries thing, you don't have to just do prenatal yoga. You don't have to just choose something that's super like low key if that's not your vibe. Like if that's your vibe, perfect. Like great. Yoga is great for you. It's, you know, good for your body. It's good for your mental health. But, you know, if you're like me, I don't know. I didn't want to do yoga while I was pregnant. I also have like very, I'm very flexible. And so it was not beneficial for me. Like I get in trouble in Uh yoga class for like bending my leg the wrong direction. (laughs) You know, they're like, how are you? Why are you? Stop doing that. Don't hyperextend your hips. So, you know, I did Pilates. I think Pilates is a wonderful exercise before pregnancy, during, after. I'm actually a huge convert to Pilates right now. Very unexpectedly because I kind of always thought it was boring, but now I'm completely hooked. But it's really about finding something that fits your life and fits your activity level, what you want to do, what feels good to you. The only activities once a woman's pregnant to avoid are things where you're going to fall or you're going to like contact sports. It's like Mm -hmm. skiing, horseback riding, things like that. Even if you are a professional, which I know is probably a tough thing to hear, I just don't personally think it's the risk because like if you're on the ski hill and somebody bangs into you, 
it's not your fault, but it can cause big problems, especially later in pregnancy. And plenty of people choose not to do that. My OBs skied while they were pregnant. Like they didn't really even apologize for it. And it was not a choice I chose to make because of all the issues that I had. But I think in general, it's good guidance. But for men too, for men, activity matters. Like getting up and walking around, having a basic level of activity is super important too. It's good for your sperm parameters. Is there like a baseline amount of steps that you would recommend people take a certain amount of time that we should be spending outdoors, things like that? You know, I think as just a basic goal, going on at least like a 30 minute to an hour long walk every day is like a very good minimal amount. And most people can make 30 minutes. Like if you can get on a phone call and just go take it, you know, walking around, that's a good thing to do. I I think we make it feel really high stakes and hard. Like must have 10,000 steps. That can be really hard for people to to achieve that. You know, I think also like, so you don't want to do anything too high intensity while you're trying to conceive men or women really like no super, super vigorous activity because it raises your cortisol levels. And that has, you know, side effects on, on, you know, your hormones and other things. So you really want to keep activity to a moderate level. Mm-hmm. So what were, you said that when you wrote bump in, in the conception fertility portion that there were there were like five questions that you were getting a lot of and and that was really what gave you the impetus to write this prequel yeah so what were maybe some of the other questions that we haven't spoken about so far and and how are you addressing them in fertility rules yeah i mean they were there were a lot a lot a lot of questions about how making a baby actually works i mean the the right. can i get pregnant during my period oh, I have to have sex right as I ovulate. And then, you know, I'll get pregnant. I'm like, oh my God, no, that is not a thing. Also, I think that male fertility was a question that came up a lot. Like, does my partner need to do anything special? I, you know, for example, knew that several people who had asked me, their husbands really loved weed. And I had to tell them, well, THC doesn't really have a great great effect on sperm production. So you need to tell them to stop. And then also steroid use. I think those those two are something that people don't really want to talk about too much, but that are quite important. But most of it was, most of the questions were so basic though. It was, it was ovulation was the number one by far. Mm-hmm. Is there, is there anything before I jump back? Cause I, as, as promised, I want to bounce around <laughs> and there's so many things I want to talk about. Is there anything else about the book that feels important to to bring up, especially with with men in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, listen to to any man listening. If you encounter infertility in your relationship, if you even if you think that you know it is a problem with with your partner, get tested. Ask to have your semen evaluated. It is really not a big deal. I know that it's scary. I know that it feels weird. I know that it, like it sounds really yuck. Like, oh God, black sticky couch and weird magazines and whatever. <laughs> I, you know, some clinics will let you do it from home. You can actually do home testing on your own if you want to. There's a company called Legacy that allows that. So I think just step in and be part of the conversation. Like we can't do this alone anymore. IVF is really expensive. I think there's a significant number of couples that undergo IVF that don't actually need it because men are not tested in 25% Mm. of infertility explorations. And it takes an average of three IVF cycles to get a live birth. So what if we could trim that down to two or even one just by ensuring that we know that, you know, male factor is not in play. 
Yeah, I, I didn't, I never thought of it like that, but that seems like a, a really easy way that we can make sure that we have a, a pregnancy that we don't have to spend so much money like with an IVF pregnancy just by men getting tested. I mean, that's, let's make sure that we have a full level of rigor on, on our end that you as women are, are going through as well. So it's, I'm glad that you brought that up. It's, it's really important. And yeah. so I, I think one of the things that, and maybe this is just my bias because I'm super drawn to nutrition and movement, if you can't tell, but I, I thought it was fascinating to learn about the pelvic floor and, and how important that is with regard to carrying a baby, with regard to growing a baby. And so I didn't even know what a pelvic floor was. And I also found it fascinating to learn how you could strengthen it. So could you just explain what the pelvic floor is and why it's important and how you can strengthen it during the pregnancy? This is one of my favorite questions to ask at events because everyone kind of thinks they know what it is. But then when you actually ask someone, as I do, because I'm I'm the jerk who just calls on people in the audience who <laughs> raise their hands, I'm like, great, you know what it is? Tell me. And most people think the pelvic floor, they're like, well, it's that thing with Kegels, right? Where your Kegels rather, you know, it's, it's Kegels where you just, it's Kegels, not Kegels. It rhymes with bagels. So, you know, <laughs> where you squeeze your butt, right? It's like where you squeeze your butt and you just sh shrink everything in there. And it's not that. So the pelvic floor is, are the muscles, they act as a hammock and they support your reproductive organs, your bladder, but especially your uterus as your uterus grows during pregnancy. So it stretches, it gets very thin compared to what it was in a non-pregnant state, which is why going into pregnancy with a healthy, strong pelvic floor is so important. And most women don't even know they have one until there's a problem. Men have one too. Men can have, especially weightlifters, can sometimes have incontinence because they don't strengthen their pelvic floor or their transverse abdominis, which is part of your, you know, the, the corset that kind of keeps everything together. But anyway, think of it as a muscle hammock and you can strengthen it a number of different ways. Kegels are the most obvious way, but you really want to think of that more as, you know, there are a couple ways people like to think of it. So like squeezing and sucking like a marble into your vagina or a tampon into your vagina and men can do it too. They can squeeze and actually raise and lower their penis, which uh, mm -hmm. I like to think of as like an elephant's trunk. So, uh, but it, but it's a really important thing for women. It's again, in this three month prep time, you know, before you're going to try to conceive, it's a great thing to do really learn how to do kegels and you don't have to do a hundred a day. In fact, please don't, but you can, you can understand which muscles you're supposed to be working by the next time you go to the bathroom while you're peeing, stop the stream of pee. And that's actually how you can tell that you're firing the, the correct ones. But after pregnancy, you know, listen, like every, it's a dirty secret, but I'm just going to be real with all the men out there who are listening. Your partner is definitely going to have incontinence right after she gives birth. It's just a thing. It's going to happen. I don't care who it is. It's going to happen like for a couple of weeks even just a little. And it's okay because you're going to be wearing these giant granny panties anyway and big pads and all kinds of stuff because you bleed for, you know, between two and six weeks after birth, which is another thing that most people don't know. In varying degrees, it can be a lot. It can be a trickle. It can be hardly anything, or sometimes it can be a whole bunch. But, you know, in France, they do pelvic floor rehabilitation as just a, a part of, you know, postnatal care. Here, not so much. Here, we don't really talk about it at all. But, I highly suggest either taking up Pilates when you feel like you're ready, when you get cleared for exercise or going and seeing a pelvic floor physical therapist, even if you don't think you need it, because 
One of the other conditions that can happen as a result of pregnancy is diastasis recti when you have a gap mm -hmm. in your abdominal muscles. And, you know, your doctor should actually at your six week appointment use fingers to measure it. Um, and if it's more than two, it's, you know, you, you have it and you can stitch it back together, but this is kind of what causes a lot of people's, you know, call it mummy tummy where you have like a little pooch, you can stitch it back together and you can actually get rid of it in a lot of cases if you do the proper work required. So I just want to put that out there that, you know, incontinence, DRA, they are not a life sentence necessarily. Pelvic floor prolapse also is something that can happen where like your vagina actually starts to fall out of your body, which sounds really terrifying, but it is kind of terrifying. Most of the time though, it happens because OBs are not taught to look at this. So there's a company called Origin, for example, I'm an, an advisor and an investor to Origin just to put that bias out there. But I did so because I read this all of this research. And I just said, oh my God, I can't believe that we're not doing more. But they actually have a telemedicine program where you know, you can make an appointment and a lot of the times insurance will pay for it if you have insurance and you can just get on the phone with someone. They will help you do a pelvic floor exam at home and mm -hmm. help evaluate you virtually. It's really great to go see someone in person though. And again, like call your insurance and see if they'll cover it because in most cases they will. Mm -hmm. And do like bird dogs, elevators, do those exercises help with pelvic floor or is that, is that yeah, a separate? Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and listen, like for someone like me who was used to like running around chucking heavy stuff, I was like, bird dogs, really bird dogs. <laughs> I don't want to do this. And, and the longer in my pregnancy that I did it, I found it to be a very grounding exercise. Like it really forced me to kind of check in with my body and say, whoa, my back is really wonky. I can't really hold it straight. Mm -hmm. I always tried to do it in front of a mirror if I could. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing how my body changed during that period and really how, you know, how different it felt and how even moving it in the ways that I was so used to after, you know, at that point it was 36 years of owning this body. But then I was like, geez, this is, this is different. Like, ah, and it changed weekly, you know, it was a constant adjustment too. So I think that those exercises are also really good as kind of a forcing function to slow down for a second and check in. Mm -hmm. All right. So I, I want to make sure that I cram in as much stuff as possible here. And one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about was medicated versus unmedicated in terms of giving birth. So could you talk a little bit about the distinction and using an epidural versus not, uh, how you arrived at that choice for yourself. I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Oh, one of the most controversial topics in childbirth today, because you, you have this contingent of people who think absolutely under no circumstance, should you ever get an epidural? And then you have a very pro epidural camp. And my answer with this, as with everyone, everything else really to do with childbirth is it is a very personal decision. So here's what the science says. The science says that epidurals can slow down labor progression. There are downsides. You can also have one that's not placed correctly. There can be some complications. They are exceedingly rare, exceedingly rare to have any real issues with it. But, you know, there's still a risk, like a very, very tiny risk, but a risk. Everyone should know that before they get it done. As with any medical procedure, you should always understand the risks, even if they're tiny. You know, with unmedicated, there are lots of different things that you can do to deal with, you know, pain during contractions, to really work through that and to, you know, help your body, you know, do what it needs to do. There are massage techniques, acupressure, 
I actually had this little black plastic comb that I used, which I don't know if you know the gate theory of pain, but basically if you experience pain in one part of your body and then you divert the attention to another, your brain is like, wait, what are you doing to my hand right now? And then you stop feeling it as intensely. I will say that I thought that it worked when it came to what I decided to do. I wanted to, because I was writing this book and frankly, I just wanted to be able to talk about all of it, you know, in a first person perspective, just, you know, I wanted to be able to say this was what happened when I got an epidural, just as like an N of one kind of, you know, retelling to be able to tell it truthfully. Also though, I would have made that choice anyway. So I went to the hospital. My birth story, as you probably read, was, was not the smoothest. I went into, I, my water broke and I didn't actually go into labor. So I had to go about 24 hours later and be induced and the induction failed. Um, I only got to six centimeters, but in that time I spent about, I think like 11 or 12 hours in fully unmedicated labor. I did not get an epidural when I went to the hospital because I wanted to be able to move around. Most hospitals will not allow you to do anything when you get that epidural, you're just stuck in bed. And for me as a person who's like antsy, who likes to be active, I wanted to be in the tub. I wanted to be on the ball. I wanted to do all of the things. And, and I used the nitrous mask. I tried the tens machine. I had my little comb, had all these, these coping mechanisms, but you know, my labor was very, very intense because I was induced. So I had Pitocin contractions. I had very little time between them to recover. It was very, very intense. But the one benefit of being unmedicated is And it's still one of the trippiest feelings I think I've ever had in my life is that you can feel progress. You can feel the baby moving down the birth canal a little bit. Like it's wild. Mm -hmm. And, and I felt that and I felt TJ and I was like, wow, like he's, he I might not be that dilated right now, but I can feel him going down there. And like, I felt the surge to, you know, to like push. And then we checked my cervix and they were like, baby, don't do that because you're not very dilated right now. But then I felt him stop. I felt him get stuck. And that for me was an indicator that, okay, something has changed. Clearly, I don't know exactly what happened here, but maybe I'm clenching. Maybe, you know, maybe something else is going on and maybe my problem is up here and I just need some help relaxing. And I was in a tremendous amount of pain. I mean, it was my labor was he was sunny side up. So I was in back labor, which is excruciatingly painful. And I finally just said, I I felt him stop. I gave it about an hour. And then I turned to my doula and my husband and I said, I think it's time for an epidural because I haven't felt him make any progress in an hour. And I don't know how much more of this I can take because it's nothing's happening anymore. And so I went and got an epidural and it was like the best thing that ever happened in my life, you know, because I just was out of pain. I could rest. Um, I actually got a few hours of sleep and I woke up the next morning and I had, you know, all of these things going wrong kind of at the same time. But what it, what being an unmedicated labor allowed me to do is kind of make peace with the fact that like, I did everything I could and I didn't want a C-section, but he was stuck so badly in my pelvis that he was crushing my ureter so I couldn't pee. I hadn't peed in a long time. And, you know, I had chorioamnionitis, he was tacky. So his heart rate was, was, you know, getting really off. And I finally just said like, just give me the C-section. Like I, I, it's not what I wanted when I, when I came in here, it's not what I thought I was going to get, but safety is all I care about. And I don't want to put his life, you know, in jeopardy at all. That's clearly what we need to do. And it was because he was wedged in there so much that he had like a triangle, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a fresh vaginal birth baby, but they all have these like kind of cone heads because Mm -hmm. they're coming through. 
he looked like that. I mean, he just had this like triangle head because he was just wedged down in there and they were, they had a hard time getting him out too. They were like, he never would have gone through there on his own. This was not going to happen. So, you know, if, if this was back 500 years ago, I would have died. Mm -hmm. But luckily for me, modern medicine was here to, to save the day. So, and yeah, like, like I said, it was not the outcome that I thought I was getting. It was not what I wanted when I walked in there, but we were both safe and healthy and that in the end is all that matters. Well, I, I know this is speculation in a lot of ways, but you've done a lot of research around it. And I just wonder why you think it is that there's so much, there's like uh, we make this binary right and wrong about medicated, unmedicated, nat natural air quotes, birth, C-section. There's so many like shoulds. And I feel like there's just so much, I don't know, shame and guilt placed on yeah. doing things a certain way. And I just like, I'm wondering why you think that is. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think because childbirth is this momentous occasion for, you know, any woman really. But I think there are some people who put this tremendous pressure on themselves to have it all play out in their, you know, in reality, in the way that it's been in their minds since maybe they were young. Some women dream of, you know, how all of this is going to go for a very long time. And I think that as with anything else, when reality doesn't map to the image that you have in your head, it can be very, very difficult to make peace with that. Um, you know, also the perception of control, right? Like your, uh, how you, how, women's satisfaction with how birth went is tied almost exclusively to a perception of control, feeling control in control of what happened to your body, how people were touching you, how it all went. Like that is how most women describe, you know, that that's really the, the number one thing that causes them to be satisfied or not. So I think that it's, it's a, it's a cultural thing. We put all this pressure on women to like perform this, you know, what we call, we say it's like a very human thing and it is, but also remember like maternal mortality rates used to be really high because it does not always work out. Like it, there are the rates in this country are still disgraceful, but childbirth is an inherently kind of risky and complicated time. And I think that we forget that because we see, you know, influencers like having home births and, you know, beautiful outcomes and all this stuff. And then you think, why can't I do that? If your pregnancy is high risk, you should not be doing a home birth. Like it's a bad idea. Please don't mm -hmm. do it. There are also a lot of people who have home births with people who are not trained to actually perform them, which is another big problem. Like I guarantee you, whoever, I forget who it was who posted their home birth on, on the internet recently, but you know, they had like a whole team of people there. They had a midwife, they had a doula, like they had, they lived five minutes away from a hospital, right? If anything went wrong. So I think those are the things that it's easy to remember in this very like bright lights, beautifully lit, you know, tub in your living room kind of image that we have of this. And the reality is it's not always like that. I think it's, what is it? At least a third, it's over a third of people who try to have a home birth are actually sent to the hospital anyway, because something is not quite, doesn't play out quite, quite in the way that it needs to. Hmm. So there's a, a couple more things that I, I wanted to get to. I think that are really important aspects of your book. And, and one is, well, it, I wrote down therapy and acupuncture as things I wanted to talk about because I don't know. Acupuncture is another one, like maybe like doulas that doesn't, it's, it's not looked at as legitimate compared to the normal standard Western medical practice. And 
I know that you had a really positive experience and that the research substantiates the benefits of acupuncture. And uh, I like the way that you spoke about therapy, that therapy isn't just for, which is not to, you know, be degrading of people that are experiencing mental illness, but therapy can also be for people who just want to be processing where they are in their life. So I, I would love to hear you speak to both of those, uh, your experience with therapy and acupuncture. Two of my favorite topics, because I get more shit for acupuncture than any <laughs> other topic in any of my books, because people say, ah, oh, it's like witch doctor stuff. It's like made up. It doesn't do anything. It's, you know, and, and the reason is that Western medicine it's a completely different set of under an understanding of the body, right? Like Eastern medicine has a very different picture of how the human body works. It's not even on the same plane of existence as Western medicine. So mm -hmm. Western medicine doesn't understand it because there is like no Rosetta stone that, that helps the two work together. So that's why doctors aren't generally going to suggest it. However, as you correctly point out, there have been a ton of studies, which importantly have not been published in like super mainstream medical journals. It's another big demerit that acupuncture is given. It's it's published in like, you know, Eastern medicine or naturopathic journals, which are not taken as seriously in that community for better or for worse. But like, yes, acupuncture is a very powerful tool for two reasons. One, it does have proven physiological benefits, right? Like we know that it helps reduce pain. We know that it can promote, you know, feelings of goodness. We don't totally understand how it works. I think that's what freaks people out. There are no bad side effects that are going to happen as a result of, of doing acupuncture. If you're working with someone that, that knows what they're doing, but I think the other benefit, and this is where I just kind of lose it with people who who question the, the whole practice is that really, you know, because you're only getting prenatal care so often, your acupuncturist can really serve as kind of like your therapist in a way. Like if you go mm -hmm. into semi-regular appointments with that person, you probably will end up, and by the way, insurance will oftentimes pay for acupuncture. Fun fact. A lot of people don't know that either. Call and ask. You can. You, the worst thing you have to do is is get you know reimbursed, pay out of pocket, and then get submit it to insurance and get reimbursed. You can get a super bill and just do it once. But the other reason is that you know it's like a forced nap. You have to chat with someone about how you're actually doing physically and mentally, and then they stick a couple needles in you, and you are forced to lay down and be still for 15, 30 minutes usually. And for a lot of people, just the being forced to lay down and stop it for a few minutes is a huge, huge benefit. Mm -hmm. Women's cortisol levels drop. It promotes just this peaceful, like, I, I don't know if you've ever done acupuncture. Have you done acupuncture before? I actually haven't, but oh. I, I mean, I sit still for 15 minutes frequently with my meditation practices. Yep. So I, I can even on a quote unquote bad meditation where it just feels like my mind is racing for the full yeah. 15, 20 minutes, I can feel a state shift that I just feel more settled, more in my body, time slows down. So yeah, it's like, even if nothing else happens, that seems like it's a win. It, it is. I mean, th this is, this is what I tell people. Like, even if you don't believe the studies that were published in journals that you question, fine. If you want to believe that you can, there's just been too many of them to ignore it at this point. Like, you know, especially some of the crazy surgery I, I I don't know if you saw this in fertility rules, but like there have been some studies out of China where like people have done acupuncture during craniotomies and it's promoted healing and it's promoted, you know, less use of heavy duty drugs. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is like substantial literature, but also 
I think to your point about breath work and mindfulness and everything else, it can be just this pause that people really love. So I did it because I was struggling with some anxiety and some other things. Like I was doing it every week, every other week as, as I could, as my schedule allowed. Sometimes it was not that often with my second pregnancy. I definitely didn't do it quite as much, but I wish that I had done it more. I just was a little more time constrained at that period, but yeah. And then therapy, you, you made an excellent point, which was, it is not just for people who are mentally ill, or I think we we are getting over our perception of, of therapy as something that is just for people who are depressed and also using it during life transitions. So I personally got grief therapy when I had my second failed pregnancy because I just was, it was the hardest thing I'd ever gone through in my life. Like it just really defied, yeah, it just really was hard. And I had an amazing group of friends and family. Like it wasn't that I didn't have support. I did. And I asked for help and I talked to people, but frankly, sometimes there are things that you need to say that you just don't want to say to anyone, you know, because you feel like you're going to be judged or you feel like I just can't say this thing to my partner. Like I want to say it and then like get it out. And I don't want anyone to remember that I said it or like no one in my life. So therapists are like legally not allowed to repeat anything you say anyway, unless you're like threatening to harm someone else. And it's such a like cathartic thing to just go in and talk to someone again, insurance will probably pay for it, you know, and working through some issues. I think that, that one thing, frankly, you know, becoming a parent, I don't know if you've done this yet, but it's, very valuable to start to think about what kind of parent you want to be mm-hmm. and what kind of values you and your partner have, what kind of, you know, cult, like traditions you want to pursue. But also part of that is reflecting on your own childhood and mm-hmm. processing your own stuff because we all have stuff. I mean, we mm-hmm. talked like the very first thing you asked me was, you know, about <laughs> childhood dinners. And I was like, oh man, like, I carry all this baggage with me about my dad traveling. You know, my dad Mm -hmm. traveled a lot and we're like pals now. He's the best grandfather in the world. He's amazing with our kids. He's saved our butts multiple times when we were in like childcare, you know, desperate situations. He just flew in and took care of the kids for a week, like by himself. It was amazing, but not by himself. I helped, but it, you know what I mean? Like, it's an incredible thing to have a parent like that, but you know, he was out of town two or three days a week. And so I had to really make peace with that as a parent, like even in this period of my life, right, where I'm promoting the book, I'm speaking at some conferences, I do very short trips. I was in LA for two nights. I live in New York. I flew in, you know, I was on an early flight on Tuesday and then I was home by four o'clock on Thursday. And that's pretty quick. I, that is what I try to do. I try to spend as little time away and really pack it in. But we really, you know, I had to do some work and think about like, why am I so triggered by missing meal times? And, you know, why am I so aggro about like really defending my time with my kids? And I realized it's like childhood shit. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's really important. And and I, I love the I, I reflect on my values and the type of person I want to be. And I, I do think, of course, about the type of parent I want to be, the values I want to espouse with my children, what type of rituals. My, my wife and I have talked about, you know, we're both Jewish. So having a, a standard Shabbat dinner where we on Friday nights don't have our phones and have a, yep. a dinner together. And one of the reasons I love asking what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up is that. I think a lot about my childhood and I think that's a, a really powerful portal into what was your experience like when, when you were younger. And 
Yeah, I think we we all do have our stuff. I have an amazing relationship with my parents. My parents have both been in therapy for 30 plus years, the entire time that I've been on this planet. I will be in therapy for as long as I'm on this planet because I always want to deepen my understanding of who I am and what triggers I have, what's blocking me, all that stuff. I think it it never goes away, but I think it's really something that's really important to me is to have those consistent meals with my family and to create spaces where we can all share what you know where we're stuck, what we're having a tough time with. Having that open dialogue is is yeah. really powerful. So therapy is is one way to start to for me there was a lot of shame in being able to talk about what where I felt blocked up and therapy has helped me process that in a way that I I never thought I'd be having a podcast or inviting an author that I look up to 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 come have a conversation with me it wouldn't be possible without therapy and I I wasn't clinically depressed I didn't have any sort of mental illness but these are really important things to be processing well, and this is why I agreed to come on because I very much respect that you're doing the work and you're talking about the work and more men need to talk about the work because you're not the only man in therapy, <laughs> No, <laughs> but you're, you're very much one of the only ones out there really talking about it, you know, that, that has, you know, a platform and, you know, I, I it's incredibly important. And I think that getting couples counseling before you welcome a child, even just doing your own form of therapy at home, where you talk about how you're both doing, you check in frequently mm-hmm. My husband and I, call, we we call it our quarterly offsite where we, you know, sometimes we go and we spend a night away um, from the kids and just, you know, go check in with each other, take a minute to just really, you know, be be with each other and, and you know, talk about how things are going, how we're doing as, as humans. You know, we talk mm-hmm. about the kids, but we try not to make it all about the kids. Like we try to make it about our relationship a bit which I think is really healthy. And, it, and it's hard, right? Like it's really hard. It's hard to be away from your kids. It's hard to really take that time, but it's so important to to make sure your relationship is okay too. Well, Leslie, is there anything that we haven't spoken about so far today that you would like to bring into the conversation now? No, I, like- yeah, I, I think that you've asked a lot of great questions and I'm just, I'm so happy that, you know, your audience is, is open to this, this kind of conversation because I, I really welcome men to I mean, I think today's dads want to be involved. They want to be more involved than ever before. They want to be good fathers. They want to be good partners, but no one is telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. No one's welcoming them to, you know, this conversation and this world. And I think it's time as women, we also really help our partners become part of the process and ask for help. Like a lot of women really think, and I, I talk to people about this all this time, I mean, when I'm talking to a female podcast host, who's like, well, how do you get your part? I'm like, you have to ask. Men aren't mind readers. We act like they're mind readers. They are not mind readers. Like you have to ask for help and you have to be honest about how you're feeling. If you're not honest and you're not asking for help, it's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Hi, congratulations. Hi, thank you. I loved your book. I've gotten like four of my friends. (laughs) Oh, nice. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm doing a second edition soon. Was there anything missing? No, I I told him. Did you ask her? What? I told him to ask you. No, like, I have to ask that. Uh, <laughs> what the top tip that you didn't include in the book was. But that would, I guess, the only thing that I just wanted more. So I guess I don't know if that's missing. But... You know, I feel like it's pretty comprehensive. I mean, a very comprehensive book. I, I think probably the only thing that didn't get in there just because I didn't have two kids at the time. 
is that I think there's like this tendency. I have I have an almost four year old and an almost two year old now. I wish that I treated my first kid like I treat my second, because your first kid, you're like, oh, fuck, like, am I going to mess this up? Like, what am I doing? I don't know. What am I doing? Ah, If I like make this decision wrong, is it going to mess them up forever? And with your second, you're like, I don't even have time for you. My toddler (laughs) is driving me nuts. Like he's like escaping from his crib. I don't even know. And you, you just don't have like the mental capacity to over-focus on the, on the, on the second one, but you enjoy your second so much more in some ways, because you just, you're like, oh, I don't know, like, you know, touch the cornhole or Michael. I don't know if you guys watched Arrested Development, but it's like, <laughs> anyway, it's, I just met Judy Greer actually at a conference the, the, uh, you know, say, say hello, say goodbye to these, you know, (laughs) but anyway, but you, you just like, you can't, it's hard because you're so freaked out because it's your first time. You just have these moments of like intense panic, Uh like treat your first kid. Like you treat your second. If you're planning on having a second kid, just remember it's all going to be okay. There are very few things that you can do that are like going to permanently mess up a baby, like just safety, (laughs) safety, love, food, sleep. I'd say those are the main things. And like all these childhood development people who are like, and then you must spend 40, you know, 40 minutes a day, like doing these five particular tasks. Oh my God. Sure. Like, fine. (laughs) I'll try. But with your second, you're going to be like, don't have the time. I don't, I can't do that because now my two-year-old is like throwing things across the room and now he's like escaping out the back door and like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, yeah, but that's my, that's my only, that's my only good advice and be gentle with yourself. Postpartum is weird. It's going to be tough. Like it's tough for everybody. Your body's going to be like, Whoa, why is that there? And why doesn't that look normal? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, It's going to be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. But just remember like it's, it's never going to be the same body and that's okay. I'm actually probably in better shape right now than I was pre-pregnancy because I've been doing like really intense Pilates for a little while. Cause I just, I just really wanted to take it up and I love it. And honestly, I feel stronger and better probably than I ever have at 40. So oh, that's awesome. Well, well, thank you so much. Yeah. I'm really excited to listen to this one. <laughs> Not like most of them. Like no, I- Oh, wait, how is it different? Uh, how is this conversation different than a lot of the other ones? I yeah. Have? I mean, I, a little bit all over the place. Like I, I'm interested by so many different things. I think that as a coach, there's a, a little bit more, it, there's a lot of leadership development people that I interview where it's like, if you don't speak the lingo, it can feel a little bit more out there. Yeah. And this one's a, a much more practical conversation. Like, everyone who is going through a pregnancy is going to be able to listen. It's a, it's a more accessible conversation. I I would say. Yeah. I strive for that. I really try. I think a lot of people get very in the weeds of, you know, topics that we don't really need to talk about that much, or they say it in a very overly complicated way. And yes, no, but, and I think that sometimes, you know, with in coaching, there's a lot of like somatic work and therapeutic modalities that we talk about and I find them fascinating and it's also, you know, not for everyone. Yeah. Including Ari. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to her for a little bit. Uh, yeah, of course. Yeah. I only, I only had a, a couple more things that I wanted to yeah, ask Yeah, you. please. Yeah. So I actually, I thought that I was going to be transitioning into 
like at the end of every interview, I ask a standard couple of questions, but we started to touch on it a little bit with parenting styles. And and that's something that very curious about. And I think that in Bumpin, you mentioned, which I was surprised to hear, this is another movement of like, there's a right way to parent, there's a wrong way to parent. And authoritative is being made, you know, historically authoritative parenting, which is basically in, in my words, unilateral, I'm the boss, do as I say, it's starting to shift a lot. And things like Montessori schools are more child led. And I, I would just be curious to hear the way that you look at, like, I think in Bumpin, it said that authoritative parenting was actually studied to be the most effective. So how do, how do you look at parenting styles in, in, with regard to authoritative, child-led, all that? I mean, listen, I think parenting styles, just like everything else, trends come and go. And, you know, you have these four basic styles. People feel like they have to choose one. There's this like data-driven parenting movement that, you know, I, I think is very unhelpful in a lot of ways because it just forces people into a corner. And if your kid doesn't fit into a tidy box or doesn't want to do the thing that that particular parenting style espouses, you feel like you've failed. So I personally think that we've put ourselves in a place where it feels like no matter what you do as a parent, you're not successful. You feel like you're somehow failing if you lose your temper, if you don't know how to navigate something, if you don't you know, use the words that you heard from your favorite parenting influencer in every single situation. So where, where I am with it personally, frankly, and this, I will never write a parenting book. People ask me all the time. It will never happen. I'm going on the record again and saying that <laughs> never, ever, ever, because I think that we've lost our ability to step back and trust ourselves. Because oftentimes, and I'm saying this is like a two-time parent now, I have a, an almost four-year-old and a, a, he'll be two in you know July. I find myself in these moments now where I just like take a beat and I take a breath and then I just trust my reaction instead of, oh God, what does this person say that I need to do about this? Or it's like, is this the Montessori way? I don't like, I don't personally like subscribing to one thing or another. You know, you've got attachment parenting, you've got authoritarian, you've got, you know, permissive, you've got all this stuff. I think we all go in and out of those states, but so much of it is driven by who your child is. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I parent my older son way differently than my younger son. My older son is a little bit OCD. He is very strong-willed. He is very stubborn. He's hysterical. He is sweet. He is funny. Like he is great. And also you have to just approach him when he's upset and be completely calm. Like if you react to his freakouts, they get worse. So if he's having a temper tantrum, I have to just sit with him and let him do it and be there, you know, so he's physically safe. And then talk to him about it and try to help him calm down. Authoritarian parenting would have you do like, you calm down right now. You want to you want to know what happens when I do that? It gets worse. Mm-hmm. So I think that for me, and I struggled with it. Listen, the twos were a very hard period of time with him and for me and for our whole family because he was so reactive. And it was hard like for, for me to kind of make my peace with this because I felt like, well, it has to be my fault that he's like this. And, you know, what if I don't know what to do? And then finally, you you experiment a lot. My second son is like sunshine in a bottle. He is just the happiest, sweetest little guy. 
He also, though, stands his ground. He does not back down. We were a little worried he was going to be a pushover. No, he is sweet and happy and also like very, very firm about like Mm -hmm. what he wants, when he wants all of these things. So I think they got it honestly. But, you know, with him, I am very different. I'm just, you know, I have to be firm and calm, but I can be a little more firm with him and it doesn't have the same effect. So I think rather than reading like every single study about every single thing and trying to make decisions about like, do I baby wear or not baby wear? Do I like, you know, do I do these very basic things? I I don't find it particularly helpful to just be an absolute adherent to one way or another. I think you've got to pay attention to your kid and you've got to like be intuitive. You've got to think about what benefits them and then what benefits me? Like, how can I show up as a great parent? Like, what do I need to do with my own, you know, emotions? Like, how do I, and this is why I'm saying you got to kind of make your peace with your, your childhood because so much of who you show up for as a parent is not only about your personality, but also how your parents showed up for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So no, no book necessary, really what, what I'm hearing. The, the if, if you're, you know, this- if, yeah, if you're going to read a book, I do really like Dr. Becky. I think that she has... What I like about her is she has frameworks for making decisions about emotional regulation, which is was for mm-hmm. me by far the hardest thing to do. I I also like I like Montessori. My kids, my older son goes to a Montessori school. I like it because it's very experiential. Do I do every single Montessori thing? No, absolutely mm-hmm. not. But I do like it because like he's a helper in the kitchen. TJ does the dishes at the age of three. Like it's amazing. He's super helpful. He's, he's kind, you know, he's in a, he's in a mixed classroom with five-year-olds. Like it's, it's been really good for him developmentally. It teaches focus. He's a very focused kid. Dylan's a totally different kid. He's going to start in mornings next year. I don't know how that's going to go. I'm hoping it just teaches him how to focus a little bit, but he's a different kid. Like we just have to kind of see, see where we're at and adjust. And I think it's all about being nimble and, and really responding to your kids with kindness modeling who you would like them to show up for as the world. Cause they copy everything that you do too. They copy mm-hmm. everything you say, mm-hmm. they copy everything you do. Um, <laughs> you know, like they, that is how they learn and you know, and you won't always do everything perfectly. I lose my temper sometimes and I apologize for it later. Mm-hmm. You know, sorry, mom, mom had a moment. Like, I'm so sorry that I lost my temper. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then the moment passes and you, you do it. But no parenting books other than Dr. Dr. Becky's good because I think the emotional stuff's tough to deal with. But the rest of it, all the data driven parenting stuff, like, no. I was going to say the punchline seems to be attune to your child, start to trust yourself, be kind, be gentle. And when you mess up, say sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And listen, I think for a lot of parents, it's also really tough because we live in such a time constrained way as working parents, especially as most are make sure that you have quality time with your kids. It's we're never going to have working parents never have the quantity of time that they want. It's just not real. Like it's not Mm -hmm. possible. So really just make sure you're present. I think being present, being kind, being calm, loving them, listening to them, being a good listener. There are going to be times when you're like, what are you talking about right now? And they just want to tell you something silly and you just listen and you know, you, you respond and play and it's, it's a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. All right, Leslie. Well, just a couple more questions for you. And, and these are the ones that I, I like to ask in almost every interview. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Dance parties in the kitchen with my kids mm-hmm. at night before bedtime. I love that. 
where do you feel uh, most unfinished? Like, what, where would you say you focus your, your most attention in terms of growth or, or development in your own life? Oh, gosh. I mean, I would say I'm a pretty insatiably curious person. So there's always something I'm very interested. Like, I'm already thinking about a third book. And mm -hmm. I, you know, like this one publishes in a month. And I'm I'm already thinking about, you know, what comes next. But I think I'm always... I'm always on a search to learn new things and, you know, make myself better in whatever way feels like I, I could improve it, you know, whether it's my mental health, my physical health. I'm, I'm on kind of a longevity journey right now, actually, trying to learn a lot about aging mm -hmm. uh, now that I'm 40 and, to, you know, building a lot of healthy habits related to that. So that's been super interesting. Mm. Is anything is is there any person or or book that you'd recommend with regard to aging? Like I've I've looked at David Sinclair. Uh, you know, I haven't read anyone's books yet, kind of on purpose because I want to go into the research myself first. Yeah. And sometimes that's how I work. Like I like to just kind of form an opinion, and then I'll read a couple things and see what I think. But really, like I don't know. There's a lot of stuff out there. I also am really fortunate that I'm in the community that I'm in professionally. I'm I'm you know, involved in one company in specific that, that is working on ovarian aging. And I'm very, very interested in that. So I've been, you know, keeping up with what they're doing and looking, really looking towards the future. Mm -hmm. Okay. So every interview I ask for an organization to raise awareness for, and I, I know that every mother counts is getting some of the profits from your book as well. And, and you selected yes. every mother counts. So if you would like to maybe just say a word or two about what Every Mother Counts is, I, I will be donating and I hope that the listeners join me in doing the same. Yeah, Every Mother Counts is an amazing organization creating awareness about the state of maternal mortality in this country, especially for Black and Indigenous women, which is the highest of any developed country. It's really, really, really disgraceful what we have allowed to happen here. And they are building awareness. They fund organizations on a local level that do, you know, everything from doula services and remote support, tech support for people. So I'm really proud to be a supporter of of Every Mother Counts. And I think that they're, you know, you can go run a marathon for Every Mother Counts and, and raise money that way for them. They have a lot of creative ways to get involved. I think that's you know, not just writing a check too, which is, which is fun. So haven't run a marathon yet. I, I haven't gotten back into long distance running since I had all my gut problems, but I, I think it's an amazing organization and, and I'm really proud to support them. Hmm. Well, I will be proud to support them as well. And I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes. I'll link to bump in, I'll link to fertility rules. I'll link to all the different ways that people can connect with you, Instagram, LinkedIn, et cetera. Yeah. And Leslie, the final question that I ask in every interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know, you're a seeker and a learner. So I would love to hear in your words, what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? I think that for me in this season of life, particularly, it's being very focused and living in a way where I wake up every day and I feel like I have a purpose. I feel like I am doing something to make the world a better place, mostly for my kids at this point, because, mm -hmm. you know, such a big part of my writing, especially as it pertains to male fertility, is because I have two little boys and I deeply mm -hmm. care about the world that we're going to leave for them. And so I think a lot about that. And I think a lot about, you know, how can I use my particular superpowers to make that world better for them? But it's really about 
saying no to a lot of stuff. It's being very purposeful. Mm -hmm. It's being very focused and, you know, doing only things at this point that align with my values because, you know, that's, that's the kind of life that I want to live. Well, very beautiful. So I want to say there were a lot of things that we didn't get into today that I was really drawn to about the book. There's symptoms. There's a list of all the different symptoms that you can expect in each trimester, the size of the baby. There were checklists of what to bring to the hospital. It was just illuminating in so many ways. And as I named in the very beginning of the conversation, the way that you brought in your own personal experience is what I thought really tied it all together. It wasn't just an informative book that had, which it was, it had lots of amazing information, but it was also a connecting book. And I think it it opens us all to realizing we're not alone and that someone else is going through something similar to us. So I started a book that was actually directed, targeted towards men that I put down and my wife gave me this book and I got through it in, I want to say a month or so of time. And nice. so, yeah, I know that this book wasn't necessarily targeted for me, but I think it's a really Oh, no, it was. Okay. That was my secret hope when I wrote it. I just said, I, I feel like all these books, well, it's because my husband tried to read those books. I think there are a couple that are good, but I, yeah. you know, most of them are like, you go dad and like, go, you know, make something outside and chop some wood. Like, I don't know, like it felt very kind of, you know, hyper-masculine and weird and stereotypical. And I think that, like I said, men want to show up as good partners. Men want to be good dads. Men want to be involved, but there's no one really telling them in a respectful way how to do that. And then I had all those like little history nuggets in there and stuff. Yeah. And I knew that men would like that. And that's, that's proven to be a good draw. And that's certainly something in fertility rules as well that, you know, I was, I was excited to put together. I was like, I could write a whole book about this history stuff. Yeah. My yes. editor was like, maybe don't do that. Well, I found oh, that God, really interesting so much. <laughs> I mean, just for this is, it reminded me of another thing. You talked about maternity clothes and how it was out of fashion to look pregnant for a long time. And now it's, uh, you know, people style a certain way when they're pregnant yep. and, I think that the the way that you weaved in history was actually I, I encourage you to to bring in history into your writing. I, I really enjoyed it. But I, I look forward to I haven't read fertility rules just yet, but I look forward to reading that. And I'm grateful again that you accepted the invitation to be on my show. And I I wanna stand for the same thing. I think it's really important that men get more involved in the conversation and read these types of books because it was it was illuminating for me. So thank you very much, Leslie. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for thank you for getting it and bringing men on board. I think it's incredibly important. And we I speak for all women. We all want men to be great fathers and great partners. And, you know, we're here for it. We just have to talk about it. Yes. Yes. And talk about it. We did. So uh, to all the listeners, whenever you're listening, I hope that you have a wonderful rest of your day or evening. Definitely check out Bumpin' and Fertility Rules and take good care of thoughts of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.